0: To the Extent That is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at at americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today we have with us Art Decker, Senior Counsel at R&P Lawyers in Shanghai. Art, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Gary.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Sure. So I'm a U.S. lawyer. I'm a graduate of GW Law School, and I um, studied Chinese for many, many years in, in university at Princeton and then when i got out of law school in 2005 i I worked at chulte roth in new york on private equity deals and meanwhile a friend of mine was um was in beijing from law school and just saying boy it was it was having a great time it was a really a, a great time to come over right before the olympics so i decided to come as well and and kind of refresh my chinese a bit and i joined a firm morrison and forster in their beijing office of course and it was very different from my experience in New York, where Schulte had a you know a, a team of about a hundred corporate lawyers, and and in Beijing in our Morrison of Forest office we had about twelve lawyers. So it was a fun experience. Had to be a jack of all trades a bit, but that's where I sort of cut my teeth learning venture capital, which I know we're going to talk a bit about today. And then I I've just to round it out, I went uh, after I was a six year associate at Mofo, I went in house to. A client of the firm Cadence Design Systems, which is the software for designing semiconductors, was there for six years as Asia-Pac General Counsel, came back to private practice at R&P, and still today kind of focus on technology clients, venture capital, particular emphasis on software companies um, entering the Chinese market.
1: And what was that like applying at MoFo in Beijing? Did you fly to Beijing and say, hey, I'm here, I want to work? Or were you uh, communicating long distance, sending an email, hey, I'm interested in moving to Beijing?
0: Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, so I used a recruiter. That was a time where you could even speak a little bit of Chinese, and, and there was just such demand for U.S.-trained lawyers. Chinese lawyers here had not yet gone kind of en mass to U.S. law schools to get llms or to get jds now now everyone gets jds when they go to the us right but there was a kind of a mismatch on supply and demand of kind of qualified lawyers so um so i used a recruiter i never met anybody i was going to be working with it was all by the phone and so i showed up the first day and 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 my my boss the managing partner of the office said oh you must be art so uh, it was quite (laughs) an unusual experience to lateral halfway around the world into a different firm but but, you know, it, it all worked out well. I had a sense that I would, I would like it there and fit in. So, and I did, I did like it.
1: Yeah, that's great. And uh, tell us about R&P, your firm, the, the firm that you're at now.
0: Sure. So we're a bit unique. We are actually a Chinese law firm, but we have several senior foreign lawyers at the firm who, um, like myself, we are really communicators um, with, the, with international clients. And we kind of bridge the gap on language and culture and so forth. We also have uh, Chinese partners at the firm, of course, and 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 a great um, bench of of qualified Chinese lawyers to support everything we do. And we predominantly serve foreign clients. So uh, again, my we have the whole range. It's a full practice. Again, my particular specialty is more on the tech side and software, especially. But we we have other guys who focus on um, you know consumer, more consumer brands, manufacturing, so forth.
1: And so, Art, are most of your clients, you said uh, it sounds like mostly foreign clients, are they people from outside China investing in China or is it the other way? Kind of which way is the capital flowing?
0: Yeah, it's all it's all inbound. I do have a a handful of local Chinese clients, particularly in the semiconductor space, because that's my my background and when I was in-house. But yeah, predominantly foreign clients who are who are, uh, you know, FDI entering the Chinese market and operating a local subsidiary here and having to deal with the regulations on how they operate employment regulations uh, for hiring people firing people everything is a little more difficult in china than what they're used to usually especially in the us so and then and then also a venture capital and M&A practice as well okay so you need
1: to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades than probably you were at schulte
0: absolutely but i i like that i mean we definitely were a bit more like a, of a kind of a general physician out here than a, than a specialist, although, and, and I like that. I think it keeps it interesting, to be honest.
1: Okay. Well, I almost don't know where to start on venture capital in China. I was surprised to read that it's uh, really the the second largest venture capital mar- market, uh, depending on how it's judged, and we can talk about that. Because I grew up, going to date myself a little bit, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I saw China as sort of a state-run economy. So I was a little surprised that there's a burgeoning venture capital scene are actually vibrant and and what we're going to discuss today is really pre-covid so we could you know Mm -hmm. spend a couple hours on covid i'm sure but uh people might be a little tired of that so sort of like the pre you know china in normal times the venture capital field i guess can you tell us a little bit about kind of how it came about venture capital in china to the extent you're knowledgeable and feel comfortable
0: sure i wouldn't claim to be the absolute expert but you know in late 90s early 2000s and and I this is when I first came over to China first as kind of a student studying chinese there were a lot of tech companies kind of following along you know for lack of a better word copying a lot of the dot com models from the us and making the you know the chinese version of yahoo and so forth so <clears throat> there's what there were those kind of companies but there was no kind of institutional funding base certainly I mean of course in the US you don't really get venture capital funding from banks but here the the banking system was all state-owned anyway and they would never loan to any company that didn't have any real physical assets as collateral so the banking system was never going to be supportive and there was no venture capital industry to speak of and and yet these companies found some funding and the goal for them was always an exit on on Nasdaq because these companies were not profitable. And so markets like Hong Kong had rules which would never let them list there. So these companies uh, at that time did start up. again, they tended to be clones of of u uh, s. business models, which had already kind of been proven out or at least been funded before. And then during the more of the mid two thousands, some of the the foreign venture capital funds, and I'm going to get the dates off a little bit, but start they started to set up a uh, uh, kind of sister arms here for China so um, Kleiner Perkins came over I remember in the mid-2000s I think Sequoia of course Sequoia China is the most um, celebrated kind of venture capital fund um, full stop here in in China and and in some ways their China affiliate has been much more successful even than their U.S. operations so that's where because I think this the U.S. funds had the expertise right to start and, and but over time, uh, it was, it was, as we can get into, you know, the Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese venture capital um, had their own funds. More of the funds became r and denominated funds instead of US dollar-denominated funds. That's a whole separate topic we can talk about if we have time, but they became more and more localized.
1: So the Kleiner Perkins and the Sequoia, they actually came over and had boots on the ground, it sounds like.
0: That's right. Yes, and some were more successful than others. Like Kleiner Perkins never really took off here, but again, Sequoia did very, very well. But you know, there was it's a, a Sequoia. I think is actually one of the more of the exceptions in that sense. I think over time, a lot of the local funds really just had better connections and access to to founders and so forth. And so a lot of these folks, I remember, you know, for a, for example, a fund uh, we worked with when I was at at Mofo called Cheeming. Which is, um, which was a small fund at the time when I joined M- Mofo. We were doing, you know, small Series A and Series B investments for of a few million dollars for them, and now they're a multi-billion dollar fund. I mean, and they've had, they've, uh, it, it's just amazing how these funds have grown. Capital today is another one. It's unbelievable how the growth of these funds over the years. And I remember them when they were much more in their infancy. And is venture capital kind of the same as it
1: is here? I mean, here you can start a company that kind of never makes money, and it, you know, have pre-seed, seed funding, then Series A, Series B, Series C, and you're continually just uh, funded by venture capital. And you know, maybe you're lucky if you break even, and then the idea is that you get acquired by some large company that can make use of the you know the technology and the company. Is it the same way there, or is there more pressure to have a show a profit early? Kind of, can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, I think it it goes in ebbs and flows, uh, just as in the US or other markets, right? There are times where funding is tighter and companies need to focus more on their bottom line. And there's times when when funding is more freely available. And so they can be more aggressive grabbing market share, right? I think in general, China is, if anything, more liberal as far as spending money at a loss to grab market share. Oh, okay. Um, Competition is quite fierce here. There's usually, again, another topic we can get into. There's a there's an ecosystem here where um, there's a there's a few dominant companies here that uh, Tencent, which Tencent, which is uh, the owner of WeChat, which is the all-in-one um, app here that's kind of a bunch of different U.S. apps combined. Right, um, can't get around without WeChat.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyone who's ever come to China knows WeChat um alibaba of course is well known in the us and so those two are really for 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 several years were sort of the kingmakers of 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 startups and so um you if you worked with one of them they kind of locked you into their ecosystem because those companies had their had, you know there was a uh, you know, if, if one of them came out with a version of a product, the other one came and funded a startup that was doing something, the other one would would fund its competitor. And so oh, it was okay. just kind of an arms race. So that's been a kind of a unique feature of of Chinese venture capital as well.
1: And let's talk about the actual deals. So here for, well, well uh, first, in most of your deals, is are the documents in Mandarin or are they in English?
0: yeah, for us, I mean, i I tend to work on more the u s. dollar deals. so they're they're offshore structures. And so and we do use English. So it would typically be, you know, a Cayman company sitting on top and ultimately a, uh, a a Chinese subsidiary. so but the but the deals are done at the Cayman level, and everything is in English.
1: Mm. And are you using? NBCA docs, the uh for series A, series B, and so mm-hmm. on, like the similar docs that we, we use here in the US.
0: Yeah. All all of the te- all of the templates uh originated. I mean, when when I again when I joined Morrison Forster, we had such an incredible experience being being San Francisco-based firm. I mean, we had we had a whole wealth of experience to draw from. Um, and I'm sure, you know, um funds that work with other firms it was similar at that time. I think a lot of the the templates came over from from, from the industry in the US. So, I mean, there were some variation in terms uh, which, we can, uh, which we can get into, but generally, yeah, we started with US templates.
1: Yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. What what kind of terms um, might vary if you're doing a, um, a US deal, like from your Schulte days, where it's sort of US, US most likely, and then now, uh, you know, came an entity going into a China entity, uh, yeah. what kind of terms vary?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, again, Ninety percent of the docs would be the, would be similar, very right. similar. Um, there's just variations on the technical side. You might be much more likely to see something like full ratchet on anti-dilution back in the day. Now these have all changed and uh, over the years. Back in the day, it was very unfounder friendly as far as the terms, and I, and I think part of that was the to be honest, the founders didn't really know, or to be honest, even more didn't necessarily even care what they were signing, in some ways because there was there's in kind of an elephant in the room was was how enforceable these agreements ultimately were if something kind of went went sour the you know so the, on anti dilution there would there might be some differences typically the founders also were at, at the series a or or uh, pre a the founders would actually be made personally liable for for the for the so for example the reps and warranties that they made and so forth so it was quite you know, I mean, I remember talking with my U.S. colleagues, and they're just kind of quite surprised at how draconian sometimes the, the terms were over here. And at the and at the same time, I think that's part of that. Part of that is these these unique structures which have developed in China to get around the um, foreign investment rules here. Mm-hmm. So I try and be succinct with it. So there is some people might in the U.S maybe following the news from time to time, there are things called VIE structures here, uh, variable interest entities, where uh, technically, most commonly companies in the Internet space, broadly speaking, uh, e-commerce and, and so forth, need a specific license here in China to operate that kind of business, which is very restricted for from a, a foreign invested company getting that license. And as a as a workaround, which has evolved over the last couple decades, there is a kind of an elaborate structure where a local operating company is owned by the found the, the Chinese national founders. Legally, it's not connected to the rest of the Cayman structure by shareholdings. It's connected via these contracts, which essentially contractually tie up that company, but don't actually own it, and and therefore. This is a very tenuous structure where there's always kind of it, 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 historically, there was always the threat that the founders could simply take the business and walk away, right? Um because they ultimately owned it at the local level. And that's probably a whole nother podcast about how about how that how that works and and the risks of all that structure and the accounting behind all that.
1: I can't but, imagine due
0: diligence on something like that if you're an investor. Well, yes and no, you know. That's a good question. I mean, on on the one hand, for someone who's never seen something like this, I can imagine a few eyebrows being raised and just scratching their head. But if if you have done investments before, the structures all look exactly the same basically. So, it's all of these companies. I mean, Alibaba, all of them have this structure. So, over the years people got more and more comfortable with it, but of course, these kinds of arrangements have never really been truly kind of stress tested, and that's also um, they're 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 signed off by the auditors as consolidating the revenue uh, the the financials of the local company into the the group, ultimately up to the Cayman level. But these contracts ex- ex- themselves, that the auditors say okay, they've got enough control. It's, it's as if it's a subsidiary of the group, I have never really been tested well tested in in Chinese courts before.
1: Speaking of auditors, uh, the SEC has been uh, kind of uncomfortable with some of the auditing for Chinese companies that are listed in NASDAQ and NYSE, mm-hmm. and it's been kind of an issue the last couple of years, though. I, I did read the other day, I think that there's uh, coming to some sort of loose agreement. Have you been affected mm-hmm. by that, like in the private company realm? Is that an issue? Yeah,
0: well, for sure, there was the threat that these companies would be delisted. Um, and that issue would, and a lot of people were quite pessimistic that that issue will ever get resolved of course yes recently it's been suddenly sort of there's it seems there's room for a compromise potentially which is great you know all things being equal I think Nasdaq is still the the destination of choice for these kinds of companies because it's obviously a very uh deep and liquid market and very you know it's a disclosure based system right Mm -hmm. with the SEC so as long as you essentially disclose everything and the risk factors and so forth, it's up to the investors. Whereas historically, you know, the, the most logical alternative would be a place like Hong Kong, which was much more of a kind of activist review of the companies before they got to the investor stage. Of course, the SEC does that too, but it's really more about disclosure. And so all things being equal, they would still choose to go to NASDAQ, but this was definitely an issue which was out there. and And I think people were Maybe because of it, more likely to take RMB funding than U.S. dollar funding and have an offshore structure. But that, that also coincides with just the rise of RMB funding sources anyway. So uh, I think that those two things kind of worked in tandem, too.
1: Why don't you tell the audience what RMB
0: is? Oh, sorry, the renminbi, the Chinese currency. Yeah, the, the Chinese yuan
1: okay great um, now you mentioned nasdaq a few times is a potential exit for a chinese company would it, the the local stock exchanges the beijing stock exchange shanghai stock exchange, and stock exchange are sort of the three that come to mind is that a viable exit for a venture-funded chinese company
0: well yes i mean generally the requirements um they've tried to you know Come up with new exchanges which are which are more uh, accommodating for you know startups which don't have a, a long history of profitability, for example. So they've tried to create that here. So those can be uh, viable alternatives. The thing is, you really you can restructure later on, but but in a lot of ways, you make a lot of decisions up front when you first set up the company and when you get the first kind of institutional investors in if you decide where it it all kind of already steers you in the direction of where where you're going to exit right Mm. so the fundamental choices you have to make are whether you're going to be structured an offshore holding company again cayman is the most common choice or whether you're going to uh just purely be structured locally and then that then affects are you taking funding in the local currency here at r b or u.s dollars that sounds like a small distinction to worry about us dollars versus rmb but another elephant in the room throughout this whole process is that the the currency here the rmb is not freely convertible so that uh, that cuts across everything we do as lawyers as as accountants as bankers i mean the it, it just has its it, it rears its ugly head in in so many ways because in a lot of ways when you're trying to structure Investments, or license agreements, or anything you have to you have to consider that some regulators have de facto control over cross border currency exchanges. Um, the most notorious is uh, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange Safe, which has a lot of regulations out there that affect venture capital and other industries, which which are just not user friendly and not not terms and. Terms and rules, and implementing rules which are not well defined. So it's it's a bit of a, a headache that shows up in a lot of different places.
1: Yeah, I would think that they sort of the uh, that there would be a little bit of a cloud of kind of the I don't want to say threat uh, the possibility of some side kind of state or government intervention. If I'm an investor, if I'm running a Cayman, if I'm running an offshore fund, and I'm interested in investing in China, kind of how is that dealt with in the uh, in the term sheet or in the documents, this kind of, uh, like I said, sort of cloud of the possibility of a state intervention.
0: Well, sure, that's always a problem. I mean, again, the most famous case is AliPay, the oh, the, right. and so that was a case where there was a VIE structure that we've that I've mentioned before, where, as I understand, Jack Ma was basically saying that he had to. He had to make the local company purely local. He, could, he couldn't have foreign investors in, in any part of the structure, including the Cayman part of the structure anymore. And at that point, SoftBank and Yahoo held very sizable shares. And so I believe from the media reports, I certainly don't have any personal knowledge about it, but I believe from the media reports, you know, there was a falling out over that, that was not resolved amicably. Jack Ma basically said his, his hands was forced because this was ultimately becoming a financial company, and and it, but it wasn't being structured as a way of uh, a financial company should be as regulated in China. And so, yeah, there's always that risk that, you know, as a company's business changes, it may become more heavily regulated and less tolerant of foreign investors. So you have that. And of course, you have data is quite a sensitive issue. These days, a company might start to get its access whether deliberately or not deliberately, into more and more sensitive data, and then the, the investment structure becomes potentially an issue at that point. So, so there's there's always a risk there. But then there's there's always people who generally still use usually for a good business are willing to look past those kinds of you know regulatory government risks and 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 invest anyway and and assume somehow that it'll get worked out if if and when the time comes
1: if a company you mentioned there a local uh there's really two paths there offshore holding company and then your local options if a chinese company opts for the the local route does that cut off the possibility of foreign investment
0: in a lot of ways it does yeah this is a this is an issue that comes up quite a lot with my clients when they're setting up and getting their seed round or 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 shortly after that, you know, like sort of what I was saying a bit before, you know, they really need to decide. Typically, they may they they may have interest here from both foreign investors and Chinese investors, and then I tell them basically, you got to pick one or the other, because if you have a a local entity here, a local Chinese subsidiary, and then you have let's say a Hong Kong parent company or a Cayman parent company on top, which can take foreign investment, you you can have Uh, The Chinese investors, again, this is the currency conversion issue all over again. Unless they have US dollars or some other foreign currency sitting outside of China, it's going to be very difficult for them to convert their local currency into a foreign currency to be able to invest at the Cayman level. So they're going to only really be eligible to invest in the local company. If they invest in the local company, then all the foreign investors are going to have to invest in the local company as well, just be, to get everybody's interests right. aligned. You can't have investors sitting at two different levels in the structure. So, so that's a that's a choice that founders are forced to make early on because of that issue of the fact that the Chinese capital can't really leave China to invest in an offshore structure.
1: Now, the local options art, right. is there still common and preferred stock similar to a US corporation?
0: yeah absolutely the the venture capital's uh funds will get will get preferred shares again anti-dilution protections they'll get liquid sometimes historically um you know uh, a lot of times they'll get terms with you know they'll get their capital back or 2x their capital back and they'll also get to participate as common shareholders as, as well often you we saw you know kind of double dipping terms oh wow um, okay oh yeah so that's what I'm saying, you know. These investors had a, had a good run there back, in the, but you know, these, of course, in practice, right? As as you know, I'm sure in the U.S. too, these terms rarely actually ever get used, right? You know, a company either dies or it's, it succeeds spectacularly, right? Or at least right. it's, sometimes you get those cases in between where it's maybe a trade sale and that and that liquidation preference becomes important where the, the the where the funds may get a better deal than let's say the founders do right but right. even in those situations here right the founder needs to be on board with those kinds of sales right so he's not gonna have a lot of it come out of his shares because of these you know liquidation preferences and so forth so so that's probably going to be renegotiated anyway at the time so we do see these these again like these draconian terms here but they're, i think they're just leverage right we have re, used to have redemption terms in there. I mean, again, and then the founders would personally pledge backing the reps and warranties. But ultimately, you know, a lot of these things never would actually ever get enforced. Right.
1: Yeah. Here, the management incentive plan, a lot of times the board will pass that to make sure that the CEO and the rest of the officers are properly incentivized to close the deal. Because if they're going to come out with zero, then maybe they're not that interested in helping the acquisition along. Right, right.
0: Exactly.
1: Like, eh, I'd rather stay at home and watch TV. <laughs> um, well this is great. Yeah, I know a, a lot of times when we're outside the dealing with things outside the US, like people kind of view the contract, the executed contract as a starting point. Whereas here in the US, we kind mm-hmm. of view it as the the final, <laughs> the final thing, you know, hey, this is it. A little bit more so. Um, so it sounds like that's kind of the case there.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, it's definitely it's, that's that across the board enforcement of contracts has gotten so much better in China, protection of IP, and on and on, um, and the sophistication of the founders here has has grown a lot. And that's that's partially because through experience, um, they've gone through this, the process multiple times before. Partially, that's because the founders have just in general gotten more power. I think uh, over time as as the, uh, the funds uh, uh, chase, chase kind of the better founders out there. And then I think also the founders themselves have gotten up to speed. I mean, everything's online, of course, these days, right? So they know, know. what US market practice is. We see, we see that. And then we see that at the lower level too, right? So founders are not wasting their time anymore negotiating priced rounds you know, for seed, right? I mean, they're using safe, YC Combinator safe, documents. So a lot of, and that wasn't true necessarily five years ago, but now, you know, it's, it's a a lot of, a lot of, in a lot of ways, they're kind of catching up with, with practice in the U S.
1: Well, this has been great. Thanks. Thanks so much. As we wrap up, uh... What, what what should venture capitalists keep in mind when they're looking at China? Now, a lot of emerging markets, which, you know, China, I guess we still call it an emerging market. It definitely seems like it's uh, almost emerged. Um, but what, what what should they keep in mind when they're looking at investing in China?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I know a lot of people, especially recently, a lot of the because a lot of the government involvement here. And in, um, I have have said, you know, China is China is uninvestable or, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not gonna be as active in the VC industry here as much as before, but I think there's still deals getting done for sure. There's still good companies, there's still a lot of opportunities here. And I think uh I think the system overall, as far again, as far as the sophistication of deals and the legal, the legal protections and enforcement of deals is is improved quite a bit. So I think they'll find a lot of things familiar in that sense. And um generally I think they should just be looking to be to be fair on their terms because founders are, are are really they should expect founders who are just as educated about the process as the the ones they might be used to in the US.
1: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Art. I got to ask you about one thing. So in Princeton, you were in the tower eating club. What on yes. earth is the tower eating club? yeah is that a super secret skull and bones thing that
0: national no national not at all it's a co. it's co-ed uh it's it's a co-ed what, what is it like it is it's kind of like fraternities and sororities but kind of toned down a bit and it's and it's a uh, co-ed i know like from someone who if someone didn't go to princeton it sounds like a quite elitist elitist snobby thing um maybe it is a bit but it's <laughs> it's I mean, I mean, when I was there, you know, three, three fourths of the of the student body joined one. So it's not some super, all you know, secret eating is this
1: a, uh, I might not be understanding is it. it's, it's uh, I envision something where you got together and have like, you know, I don't know, Indonesian fun food one night. Oh, oh,
0: so well, basically, you um, it started, I think, well, at least 100 years ago, where um, people got tired of the cafeteria food, basically. So they so some of the wealthier students, I think, basically hired their own personal chefs, bought a house right off campus. Oh, all there's these these old houses, like literally at the time they were right off campus. Now the campus has grown up all around them. So it's funny, now they're kind of in the middle of campus. But they're private property, private clubs, and in, and you and students usually join them. So they take their meals for their junior and senior that year at these clubs instead of at the than you know the the dining facilities that the university runs.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah.
0: very interesting.
1: Uh, a little sure. different than I expected. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Art. Uh, thank you for joining us and enlightening us about venture capital in China. Thanks for having me, Gary. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law, brought to you by the American Bar Association.